0: So this evening is the conclusion of the first full day that we have spent together practicing. And as a way to honor the fact that there are many new students here, those who've not done a 10-day retreat before, and perhaps as a reminder for old students who have been practicing this path for a long time, I'd like to begin with an overview of what we're doing here together using the path of practices outlined by the Buddha. If we look around the retreat on this first day from a, can't quite say an objective, but probably from a very subjective point of view as one practices, it's difficult. And then you kind of look around and there are all these people. Who are silent and not speaking to one another, even while we eat. And there's some appearance um, of a kind of backward, depressed, over medicated mental hospital here. You know, I sometimes wonder what the man from UPS or the Postal Service, when he comes in and sees everyone walking around and not talking to anyone, so slowly, kind of zombies. My teacher used to. Uh, you know walk around the, the retreat and uh, said to me you know it does seem a little bit like a hospital here doesn't it and you go around to people and say I hope you get well soon I <laughs> hope you get well soon there's a story of a man who decided to go under to undergo a very deep and rigorous Zen training and he went in a monastery where instead of a 10-day retreat, it was a 10-year retreat. And at the end of every 10 years, it was actually a longer retreat than that, but after every 10 years, you had an interview where you could say two words to the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So he sat and walked for 10 years, and finally the time for his interview came, and he went in and bowed to the master, and the master said, well, how is it going? And he said, hard beds the master said well you know this is not meant to be a soft life it's really a a practice of awakening and so um, you have to put up with these conditions but it's really worth it as your practice deepens a lot will come for you and kind of encouraged him to go back ten more years passed came in bowed and see the master and the master said well how's the practice developing for you and the man said Bad food (laughs) and the master said yes I know we live a life of renunciation again remember I told you about that and it's part of the way of our life not to try to accumulate grand things but to to discover a kind of self-sufficiency and capacity just to be open with things and so forth you'll understand just keep practicing and sent him back ten more years passed He came into the interview again, bowed to the master, and the master said, well, how is it going for you? And he said, I quit. (laughs) The master looked back and said, I knew you'd never make it. All you've done since you've got here is (laughs) complain. So in case that rings a bell for you, aware that it's only one day and not ten days or ten months or ten years nevertheless the question arises what are we doing here together this Buddha spoke from the very first talk he gave of the path of practice describing it as the Eightfold Path and after his awakening or his enlightenment after resting for some time under the Bodhi tree and thinking who he might teach he walked to the deer park in Benares to give his first sermon, his first um, teachings to the men that he'd practiced with in the forest as yogis and when they saw him they said, let's not talk to this guy, he left us he started eating good food, he gave up his austerities he put on a warmer robe, so they weren't going to talk to him but he came up and spoke to them politely and there was something about him they could hardly resist And then he started to teach them and they said, but you've given up the true path. And he tried to teach them again and they complained. And finally he said, "Um, did I ever tell you that I was enlightened before? And they said, no. He said, did I ever speak as if I really understood before? They said, no. He said, well, why don't you listen to me? Just see what it sounds like. And he was so joyful and illuminated and certain in his knowing that they sat down with him and he began his teachings not by talking about all the glamorous glorious things that can come in spiritual practice but by starting with the problem of human life he began by speaking about suffering the first noble truth and he said as the Buddha as the enlightened one I have looked into this human existence into life And I have seen deeply with the eyes of compassion. First, the suffering of the world around us, which you also know, the suffering of those who are hungry or starve, even though in another country or place we have grain elevators full of food. Today on earth, hundreds of millions of people go to bed hungry the suffering of those who are homeless or sick, the sorrow that's caused by the arms race and the fact that our country, for example, has become the largest exporter of weapons ever known in the face of the earth. We pay for all the things we import, you know, cars from Japan. I drive a Japanese car, too. Nice Toyota the cars and the oil and all the things to make our life go this way. We pay for a lot of it by selling weapons around the world, enormous numbers. And then we wonder why it's not so safe in the world. The suffering of the arms race, the suffering of political injustice, the kind of fear that many people live in, but not just out there in the world, the suffering in our own personal lives of our fear, depression, confusion, sorrow, that we all know. And the source of that great suffering in the world, prejudice, greed, hatred, doesn't happen by accident. We, as a species, make it. The Buddha said he looked with the eyes of compassion and saw people everywhere seeking happiness, yet doing the very things, often doing the very things, That lead to suffering you know that even when we're relatively affluent even a life of pleasure alone doesn't really bring happiness Bernard Shaw said that there are two great disappointments in life not getting what you want and getting it you know what he means and there is no escape as the Buddha pointed out from aging, from change, from loss, from death. The trouble with you is you think you have time," said one teacher. You know, Americans spend $50 billion a year on security equipment to try to make the things that we own and possess safe, $300 billion a year for the military or more. The beginning of the Eightfold Path starts with what's called right understanding. Right understanding acknowledges that there is suffering in the world. It sees its cause, greed, fear, prejudice, hatred. And then it asks, what do we want? In the end, in this life, what most matters to us? If you have the privilege of being with someone near the time that they're dying, someone who's lived consciously, the questions that are asked are very simple ones did I live fully? did I really live in this life? and maybe even more importantly did I love well? did I genuinely let myself love the people around me, the community the trees, the earth because in the end maybe that's all that matters Carl Jung, in speaking about human life, said that only if a human being's heart or spirit is connected with that which is sacred, that which is timeless, can life have any great meaning. So not only did the Buddha begin with the right understanding of the suffering in the world, but seeing this, we also sense, each of us can sense, that that's not the only truth, that there's not only sorrow, but that there is some other possibility. We can sense it in ourselves, the capacity that each of us have for greater compassion. We know it's there. The human capacity for greater wakefulness that we have in our own hearts. This you could call your Buddha nature. And we can awaken our Buddha nature. Every single person can awaken to our Buddha nature. What's important is to understand that this extraordinary possibility does not happen by accident. It follows the law of karma, another part of right understanding. The law of karma is very simple. How we act and speak and how we think and the qualities we cultivate in our being are what we will become. If you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. If you plant a mango seed, you get a mango tree. And if we repeat anger and hatred, after a while it becomes our way if we practice greed and hoarding becomes our fashion. The repetition of the heart like a potter or an artist or a baker or a scientist, not so much the effort to make ourselves different, but what it is in our being, in our heart that we cultivate becomes how we blossom and awaken. So this beginning of the Eightfold Path is a recognition of the sorrows of the world, and within them the possibility of awakening, great heart of compassion, the capacity for awareness. To do this, to open, asks that we sit in the very midst of this life, and open our senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, body, mind. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to call meditation practice, he would describe it in the phrase, taking the one seat. He would say, there is a room, and in the center of this room you can place a chair, open the doors and the windows, and take your seat in that one chair, and let whoever wants to come and visit beautiful things, painful things, all of the things of the world will arise and your task is to take this one seat in the center of the room, in the center of the world and open the doors of your senses and meet what arises with attention or awareness and with kindness or respect. If you sit open with respect and kindness, you will see all the things in the world, and you will be awakened. So this is right understanding, sensing in each of us the possibility of awakening as the Buddha did. The second step of the Eightfold Path is called right attitude or right aspiration. And it's really the quality of mind or heart that we bring to spiritual practice. And this right attitude or aspiration is initially a quality of discovery, an openness of mind, an amazement, if you will, that we're here at all and how this whole body and mind works. Instead of coming with our ideas, and we all have, as Gil pointed out, certain expectations of the retreat or ideas of our meditation, whether we're experienced, or whether we're relatively new in practice. Doesn't matter. It's said in India that when a pickpocket meets a saint, he sees only the saint's pockets. That is that our ideas of how things should be are bound very much. <coughs> the, uh, the ideas of what we what we want or hope limit very much what we learn and see. So right attitude, or right aspiration is one of openness. Let me see what happens this time. I've done retreats before, but this time let's see what arises. Let's discover. Let's be open. Sometimes this quality is also called the quality of loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is that openness to be with things as they are, rather than to try to plan how they should be, change, expect them to be different. And with this attitude of openness and kindness, you'll discover that meditation has a profound process of healing. As you sit, there arise for you all the tensions that you carry in your body. Just sitting quietly, all the ways that you store and hold pain and tension physically will begin to open. And they ask for a kindness and a respect and as you do there's a very deep healing that takes place over many days not quickly but in its own sweet time there's a healing of the heart and the emotions as you sit often the unfinished business of your life here you are sitting doing nothing but following your breath or taking your steps just being present and all the things left unfinished, the grief that you may carry for losses of the past year or two or longer, the sorrows you carry, the longing, the beautiful things that you've wanted or hoped for but not let yourself feel. Many of the things that are there in the body of our emotions and heart will arise. And as we allow them, they too become healed. We make our peace with them. There's a healing in the mind as all the thoughts and hopes and plans come, and we learn just to make space for that, just to rest, connected with this present moment. So this is the attitude of openness, of listening, of discovery. Touching what arises with our awareness, seeing what's true, i like to read a passage at the beginning of retreats, which I will now, from a very good friend that describes this process, this attitude of openness and healing. He was a Marine, a medic, Lloyd Burton. He said, I served as a medic with the Marine Corps In the early days of the Vietnam War in the mountainous region on the border of North and South Vietnam, our casualty rates were high, as were those of the villagers we treated when circumstances permitted. It had been eight years since my return when I attended the first meditation retreat. At least twice a week for all those years, I sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming that I was back there facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking suddenly alert, sweating, scared, night after night. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep. They filled the mind's eye during the day. At sittings, during walking meditations, at meals. Horrific wartime flashbacks were superimposed over a quiet redwood grove at the retreat. Sleepy students in the dormitory became body parts strewn about a makeshift morgue on the DMZ. What I gradually came to see as I relived these memories as a 30-year-old meditator was that I was also enduring for the first time the full emotional impact of experiences that a 19-year-old medic was simply unprepared to withstand. I began to realize that my mind was yielding up memories so terrifying and life-denying, so spiritually eroding that I had ceased to be aware that I was carrying them around. I was in short beginning to undergo a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared and therefore most strongly suppressed. At the retreat, I was also plagued by a more current fear, that having released the inner demons of war, I would be unable to control them, that they would now rule my days as well as my nights. But what I experienced instead was just the opposite. The visions of slain friends and dismembered children gradually gave way to other half-remembered scenes from that time and place. The entrancing, intense beauty of a jungle forest, a thousand different shades of green, a fragrant breeze blowing over beaches so white and dazzling they seemed carpeted by diamonds what also arose for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present self compassion for the idealistic young would be physician forced to witness the most unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he could hardly acknowledge he carried. Since that retreat, the compassion has stayed with me. Through practice, it has grown to sometimes encompass those around me as well when I'm not too self-conscious to let it do so. And while the memories have also stayed with me, the nightmares have not. The last of the sweating screams happened in silence, fully awake somewhere in Northern California over a decade ago so in a way it's a very terrible tale that he tells and yet a profound one of healing and opening this quality of right attitude of opening and kindness is what's called for in the practice and with it a quality of renunciation That is a willingness not just to follow our habit, but to experiment, to study, to be aware of the things that we would normally run away from and stay with them all. There's a wonderful practice that's traditional in some Buddhist countries that I will share with you, if you like, in this way for the retreat. And that is for you to imagine, and it may be true, That everyone around you, in fact, everyone on earth, are all fully enlightened Buddhas, except for one person, you. (laughs) And that they are all here doing exactly what they do, because it is the perfect thing that you need to learn how to awaken, to awaken perfect compassion, perfect composure, to awaken great patience and kindness and steadiness, that all of them are doing just what they do for your own sake and benefit. So this is part of that quality, the second step of discovery, of openness, of a willingness to listen and learn. The next three steps of the Eightfold Path are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And they all speak of what is called uprightness of heart, or virtue, or ethical conduct. And what they say, as the Buddha did from the very beginning of his teachings, his first Dharma talk, is that our life is all connected and cannot be separated. To put it very bluntly, it's really hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. The way we live and act and the way we are inwardly are mirrors of one another. They're intimately connected. And so the actions of our life and our heart must come into harmony for us to awaken. The actions are as important as anything that we think inside. Someone said it's easier to love a thousand people in loving kindness meditation than one person that you live with. Some of you may have noticed that difficulty. But that's really where it matters. So right speech is the first of these steps of awakening of our a- in our action. And right speech means to become conscious of our words, mindful. So that's included in our spiritual path. We talk a lot, I mean I do because it's my job to make a living but even when I'm not kind of on duty so to speak I do anyway and we all do most of us and we say this and that and we talk and so forth most of the time really all we want to say is hello I'm in here are you in there kind of make a little contact or to say to somebody I love you but you know you don't say that in public in this country not normally so instead we ask how the retreat went or our vacation or something but really often through our words, um, we miss what we really want to say. Conscious speech, first of all, in the Eightfold Path, is to avoid speech that's harmful, not to use words that cause harm to another person, or more positively, to speak that which is both true and useful or helpful. In due season will I speak, said the Buddha. Truthfully will I speak. Gently and not harshly will I speak, that is, conducive to harmony or concord. With clear intention will I speak. To their benefit will I speak. These are the kind of considerations that were taught about right speech. Our words have an enormous power. And to begin to pay attention, if you work simply with awareness of speech in your life, that would be enough. would transform, can transform our whole life. There's a Sufi tale I like to tell about right speech and the power of our words. You know those words, you said just a few words and you wish you'd never said them? Or those other few words that you're so grateful that you or someone else said? Well, it happens that in a village in the Middle East, there was a boy who got very ill, the son of the headman of the village. And everyone tried to heal him with no avail, the village doctors and so forth. And finally, a Sufi master came along, and was asked, Please help, master, and worked his way through the crowd and came up to the boy and said a few blessing prayers over him and then turned to the father and said, now he will be well. Well, one of the unbelievers in the crowd said, what do you mean this old kind of yogi, renunciate, this Sufi, coming in and saying a few words? How can a few words heal a sick child like this? And the master turned to this man and said, what do you know of this? You're an absolute, complete fool, an ignoramus, in front of all the other villagers. Well, the man was really insulted, he got angry, he got red. He was just about to lash back at the Master when the Master said, See, if a a word or two has the power to make you red and angry like that, why should not a few other words have the power to heal? So right speech is the care, the bringing of consciousness and kindness to our words. Better than a thousand useless words, said the Buddha, is one word leading to truth. Right action, the same. It's the speech and action that lead us to happiness. When you speak truthfully, people love it. They love you. What's true and what's, what's helpful to them. To act consciously means to act in ways that support rather than harm life, to not harm other beings. The first traditional precept we talked about last night, not to kill, to cultivate a reverence for life. Imagine how different the entire earth would be if we followed just this one precept, even half a precept. Let's say, let's not kill people, just not to kill people. What an entirely different planet we would live on. Enormous power in the way that we live and act. Mostly it's a respect for life that every single form of life wants to live. There's a true story of Russian astronauts who went up to the space station to stay for six months and they brought with them a fishbowl with three little goldfish in it to see how they would do under weightless conditions. And after several weeks, the fish began to get sick and gradually to die. And the astronauts said, We were so distraught, what we did not do to try to save these fish? Down on Earth, we might go fishing in the streams and think nothing of it. But far away from the Earth, every form of life becomes so precious and so meaningful. We did everything to care for our three fish. And then he said, when the capsule finally landed back on the earth, opened the door of the capsule and got down and kissed the earth, touched it to his cheek. So beautiful, just to, to walk and breathe and move about on the surface of this earth. So that's part of our mindfulness, mindfulness of speech, mindfulness and happiness, not to harm beings, but to have a reverence for life not to steal. Suppose people in the retreat started to steal from one another, what kind of society would we have right away? Hiding things, locking them up, getting guards to guard them, paranoia, it's horrible. To not steal means to have respect for things as well as people. To realize that we don't own anything anyway, you know. We're just accountants in the firm. We get to keep it for a certain time and then pass it along. We're caretakers of the earth. There's an exercise I like to commend to people. Remember when you were a kid and you used to lie out on a starry night and look up at the stars? Well, try it sometime. You could even do it in, you know, some proper place in the desert. Be careful what you lie down on out here. But anyway, when the night is clear and you can lie down and look at the stars. Lie back, look at the stars. Only instead of imagining that you're looking up at the stars, imagine, which is also accurate, that you're on the very bottom of the earth and you're being held against it by gravity, which is true, like a big magnet, and that you're looking down into endless galaxies of stars and here we are in this little blue-green globe floating in the midst of two-thirds of the way out the arm of one medium-sized galaxy in billions of galaxies and yet it's so precious to breathe the air to give and receive each breath to exchange with the trees they take our carbon dioxide give us oxygen and to not steal In the deepest sense again is the respect for all that we share together that we give and receive constantly from one another and to do that with reverence with with mindfulness to refrain from sexual misconduct a very important precept in these modern so-called modern times basically it means to not harm others through our sexual actions, out of our compulsion or our need not to betray ourselves or another person. Sexuality is very, very powerful. In it, there's a kind of surrender that we rarely have in our life, a letting go, wonderful kind of awakening in some moments. It's also very close to birth and to death. So there's this enormous power about it. And in the Buddhist tradition for householders, sexuality can be associated with greed and compulsion and exploitation. Or it can be associated with love, with intimacy, with communion. To respect its great power to cause harm or happiness and to use that aspect of our life with wisdom, with consciousness, with kindness. And finally, to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Not because you're supposed to. I mean, you can do whatever you like. These are simply the laws the Buddha described for human happiness. Addiction. We are a society of great addiction. This is from a woman, Ann Wilson Shape who wrote the Addicted Society. The best adjusted person in our modern society is the person who is not dead and not alive, just numb, a zombie. When you're dead, you're not able to do the work of the society. But if you are fully alive, you are constantly saying no to many of the processes of the society. The racism, the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, and eating carcinogenic foods. Thus it is in the interest of our society to promote those things that take the edge off, that keep us busy with our fixes, keep us slightly numbed out, zombie-like. In this way our modern consumer society itself functions as an addict. Ten million drug addicts, twenty million alcoholics, countless of other kinds of addictions, gambling, sexuality, all kinds. The majority of automobile accidents and deaths caused by abuse of substances. The majority of fires in our homes. The great majority of physical and sexual violence and abuse visited in families, all associated with intoxicants. Take care let us not harm one another the principle is to refrain from intoxicants that lead us to heedlessness or carelessness and on the opposite side to cultivate that which brings greater consciousness all of these things right speech right attitude and finally right livelihood are ways to develop the heart of greatness to live in harmony inwardly and outwardly right livelihood again is to do work that doesn't bring harm to others not to deal in weapons or drugs but more fundamentally we each have a longing in us to give back to the earth and there's a joy of having work to do it doesn't mean perfect work we have the myth in the West you'll have the perfect job there's no such thing really as the perfect job I was just in India and the person who fixed my shoes because they got kind of torn and this shoemaker he was so intent on doing it right and he had me try it on several times and took it off and he was really pleased that he did he said look at that didn't I really do a beautiful job on it and it was wonderful to have him say that it's like that was what his life was was to do what he did and to do it well when one old Hasidic master died student was there and the person came to the funeral and said, what was the most important th- thing to your master? And the student replied, whatever he happened to be doing at the moment. Right livelihood means taking what work we have or find or are given and using that to cultivate patience, wakefulness, compassion. to make it our spiritual practice. This is Thomas Merton as a writer. He says, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes you'll be so disgusted you will wish that you were dead. So right livelihood really speaks to doing what we do as a sacred activity, whatever it is, chopping vegetables in your yogi job, you know, or whatever your work is. And then these are followed, the steps of the greatness of heart, of our action, making a foundation of conscious action and speech by the last three steps of the Eightfold Path would speak of the inner art of the development of meditation right effort right mindfulness and right concentration what is right effort because here we are practicing together right effort is the effort to awaken not the effort to change who we are make our personality perfect i think perfect personality is kind of an oxymoron you know not something that one would find. Here is Gandhi, he says, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the entire British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, I find far more difficult. If you've ever been to India, you'd understand what he's talking about. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. <laughs> so what does it mean to make the right effort in meditation and spiritual practice? A young man went to his Zen master and said, "I really want to join your monastery and practice and get enlightened. How long will it take me to reach enlightenment?" And the master said, "Hmm, maybe ten years." One of these Zen stories, again, right? And he said, well, how about if I really work on it? And the master says, oh, I was mistaken 20 years. <laughs> and the monk said, well, why did you change that? I mean, that doesn't seem right. Uh, you know, at first you said 10 years, and then you said 20. He said, hmm, I think in your case, 30 years. Do <laughs> You understand the story, huh? Mm-hmm. When the mind is still and open, we can see what is true and it is the truth that liberates us and not our efforts to be free right effort is not the effort to change things but to rest in the middle of them and to open to see what is so it is an effort to shift from our reaction from our small sense of self from identification with what is called The body of fear, the contraction that we carry with us much of our life, and to find an openness that leads us to see what is true. It speaks of this in the Tao Te Ching, it talks about the beauty of water, that the yielding conquers the resistant, the soft conquers the hard, is a fact known by all, yet used by very few. So right effort is the effort to be present, to open to what is without resisting it. Kind of a balance, like the tuning of the strings of a guitar, not too tight and not too loose, just being awake and present. The image that I like to use comes from a poster that I saw some years ago of a Hindu guru, Swami Satchitananda, who had a long flowing beard and flowing hair a wonderful yogi and meditation teacher and in this particular poster he was standing in the tree pose let me see if i can do something like that with a little orange loincloth on just like this only the thing that was interesting was that he was on a surfboard on a really big wave it's quite a fantastic picture and it said underneath you can't stop the waves but you can learn to surf, meditate with Swami Satchitananda or something like that, kind of an advertisement. And it gives a wonderful image for the art of meditation and for the meaning of conscious effort or right effort. It's the effort of balance. A great effort will be required of you in these 10 days or 20 days together. I used to talk about it in terms of the warrior, like Carlos Castaneda, lots of will and strength, which is also a part of practice. And I certainly use that in many years in my own sitting. But I find that that sometimes can entangle us. We start to fight against what is so. And I sense that a much more accurate and skillful language is to speak about, again, the effort of the greatness of heart, the great heart of a Buddha, to say what is so just now, to see what is so just now, and to open to just this as it is, which is an enormous effort and an enormous courage and a wonderful thing to do. So there's right effort, the effort to be present, to be open, to awaken, And right mindfulness, the last two steps, right mindfulness. What we're doing is practicing the teachings that come from the sutra or the discourse of the Buddha on mindfulness that begins this way. The Buddha was with his monks outside of the town of the Kuru people and he said, followers of the way, there's a most wonderful path to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right road, and realize nirvana. And this is the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, of the mind, of feelings, mindfulness of the dharma, of the laws that govern feelings and mind and body. How does one do this, the Buddha says. A practitioner goes to the foot of a tree or an empty room or a quiet place, sits down, holds their body straight, and establishes awareness together with their breath. Breathing in, they are aware they breathe in. Breathing out, aware they're breathing out. Then various states arise. The mind is filled with distraction or fear. They know distraction or fear. Distraction or fear pass away, the mind becomes calm, joyful, open. They know the joyful, calm or open mind. Thus, practicing, awareness is developed. Mindfulness is a wonderful capacity. It's the capacity that we have to be present, awake. It's our full attention to things. You know how much of our life many of us anyway live on automatic pilot we can go for a walk in the beautiful desert or go up in the Sierras or by the beach and you take this walk and you walk for half an hour an hour and all of a sudden you wake up and you realize the whole time almost you were thinking about your taxes because it's April or you were thinking about what you are going to do when you get back home and you know all the unfinished mail that's there that you have to call or maybe you were just thinking about how you were going to tell them what an amazing walk you had in the desert all the people you're going to tell about it, right? and then you wake up and you realize that I wasn't even there so the quality of mindfulness is a wholeheartedness it's a presence of just being with things as they are there's a kind of aliveness to it. In any moment that we're mindful, we're alive. Being recently with the Dalai Lama in this conference in India, one of the questions, one of the people was asking him about the role of teacher and how to um, work with all of the ideas that people have of us as teachers. It was a teacher's conference that, that um, I attended with him and all the expectations people have. The needs teachers have, not just to be teacherly, but to have other parts of their life fulfilled. And, um, you know. So we were talking to the Dalai Lama about that, and someone said, and it seems important that we have times to be off-duty. The Dalai Lama said, off-duty? And he was mostly understanding English, but then he talked to his translator, off-duty, what does this mean? Sort of took a little while to get the translation through. And finally he sat and kind of meditated or thought about it for a little bit and then he looked kind of quizzically around at all the teachers he said bodhisattva off duty? Buddha off duty? that was a wonderful moment it was like you're not gonna get away with that you know mm-hmm. what mindfulness is really says that whatever the circumstance, it's not that you have to make your life some new kind of life, but whatever the circumstance with the people with whom you live, the way that you drive, um, eating, uh, caring for your environment, the work that you do, that all of that can be more alive, more wakeful. And that is the practice of wakefulness. Now to do it, because it doesn't happen by itself, we come together and we train ourselves, we cultivate, we generate, we invite ourselves to live in this field of awareness. An image that's used sometimes is of training a puppy. Put the puppy on the paper, stay, gets up and runs around you, put it back again, stay. Does the puppy listen? Hardly. Same for your mind, You sit down, stay on the breath, please feel the breath, does it listen? (laughs) Goes away, bring it back, stay. Goes away again, makes a mess somewhere, rather, like a puppy, right? (laughs) Clean it up, bring it back, stay. Now, at first, it's very discouraging, because you sit and you realize that you're aware of the breath 2% of the time. And you say, what kind of yogi is this? 98% lost in thought. But you will see, over a few days, maybe after three or four or five days, that instead of being aware, 2% and 98% lost in thought, you will find yourself only 96% lost in thought. Say, well, what good does that do me? But actually that means that you're here twice as much as you were when you came (laughs) and that is not a small thing. It's like double the amount of actually being alive and present. So mindfulness is this capacity to be present. And what it asks in cultivating we're starting with the breath and our steps and then over the days we'll expand to mindfulness of the rest of the body of mindfulness of feelings then mindfulness of thoughts and images and finally we'll be aware of all of our experience what it asks in each of these steps is that we notice that we be aware that we are open to what is present without rejecting it Or trying to change it or disliking it or grasping or judging just noticing there's a short breath there's a long breath there's a very shallow breath oh I should be having long deep breaths if the meditation were working right oh there's a thought about the breath it's not a true thought short breath is as good as long breath there's another thought there's no thought simply noticing beginning to discover the very nature of this mind and body. Maybe first what you see is just the inner waterfall, how much thought there is. That's fine. That's an insight. It's the first insight in insight meditation, how busy it is in there. To be mindful is to be present for what is so, for this amazing dance, and to see it as it is. Then the last step of the Eightfold Path, and it connects with right mindfulness, is called right concentration. Right concentration is a steadiness of mind. Or concentration could also be called a connectedness, in which we bring our body and our heart and our mind all together in the present moment. A kind of steadiness. And you'll see it, it doesn't come so much in the first day or two or three but it is a gradual calming and relaxing, relaxing into the breath, feeling the body, being connected in this present moment with that which is timeless. What is timeless is whenever we're really here without thinking about past and future, we come to rest in that which is eternal. Some people think you only get to the eternal after the end of life when you die but it's not there it's here and it's always been here so to concentrate is really a steadiness and a connectedness where we let go of past and future and find ourselves here in a whole and complete way the caller chants in a loud voice at dusk does he think God is deaf this is Kabir Don't you know that God hears the ringing of the anklets on the feet of an insect as it walks? So there's a kind of listening, a subtle and sweet listening. If your breath gets very, very soft, you want to let your attention get soft, just to notice that. If there's a bit of sadness or happiness or expectation or fear, even whispers, you notice that and then you feel the next breath. Being present and noticing what's here. What we're looking for is not far away. This is again from Kabir, the great Indian poet and mystic. Are you looking for me? I'm in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas or in Indian shrine rooms nor in synagogues nor in cathedrals not in Catholic mass or kirtan, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me, where is the divine? It is the breath inside the breath. So we sit here, and we begin to discover this capacity for wholeness, for presence. And it's a gift that we can bring to all things, whether it's computer programming, or architecture and science, or oil painting, or lovemaking. The amount of fullness, of presence, of connectedness, of body and heart and mind that you can bring together in your life the richer and more beautiful it will be. As we open in this way, as we connect and open, we find that our mind opens. We move beyond what Alan Watts called the skin-encapsulated ego, all the notions of who we are and what we should be doing. As we get still and connected and open, the boundaries begin to dissolve. All of us, I think, can sense this possibility, even if it just comes in a moment and disappears. The possibility of presence, of letting go and being here just in this moment, one step at a time, one breath at a time, that great space where our heart becomes open and free and easy. Life is this simple, Again, says Thomas Merton, we are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable. It is true. You must only look to see. So the Eightfold Path is like a mandala that we practice here together. The understanding that there is suffering in life. Anybody not notice that? And that in the midst of that, there is also the possibility for the great compassion of a Buddha, for great awakening. That it doesn't happen by accident, but is nourished, cultivated by us. Right attitude, openness, discovery, kindness. Right speech, action and livelihood. The realization that how we speak and act creates who we are. That they're not disconnected that the actions of our life is the foundation of our awakening. And right effort, the effort to be present with balance, to be open, to listen. Right mindfulness, the care of our attention, neither rejecting nor grasping, but sensing clearly. And right concentration, that deep capacity to be connected, to calm ourselves, to rest here in the still point of the turning world. They don't happen one after another, but these eight steps are like a great mandala with our mind and our heart right in the center. And so we fulfill them with every step we take here, with every sitting and every time we're aware of the breathing. And even though it seems like a very simple thing we do, And it is, in this very simple act of being present, all the great teachings of spiritual life will come to you. So let us sit just for a minute.